Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs here at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming here this afternoon. Uh, this is a policy forum entitled Trump's Energy Policy, Promise or Peril. Um, before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream and would like to join the conversation, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet appropriate questions to us at hashtag Cato Energy. That's one word. Uh, as everyone knows, or at least intuits, there's always a chasm between the promises of a candidate and what happens under their actual administration, and further, what they can legitimately take credit for. As Cato's Trevor Thrall noted recently, Trump supporters took his often shocking rhetoric seriously, but not literally, whereas his opponents took his rhetoric literally, but not seriously. What then are we to make of his statements regarding energy policy? Donald Trump has said that he would stop Barack Obama's clean power plan, he said he would cancel the 2015 Paris Accord on greenhouse gases, and he said he would end what he called, quote, the war on coal. On the domestic front, we know that much of what a president can do through executive action alone is often transitory. Robust, lasting change requires accompanying congressional legislation. And for all intents and purposes, though Trump has majorities in both chambers of Congress, he does not have the requisite number of votes in the Senate to pass whatever Republicans can agree upon themselves. Further, Congress has made clear that their agenda for the first few months will involve reforming the health insurance market and later tax reform. But apart from the difficult political landscape, what are the policies? What all can we glean from his campaign promises, his recent personnel picks, and his various statements as the chief executive? Does his agenda, if implemented, leave us better or worse off? To discuss all this, we've assembled the panel you see before you. And to start us off, Robert L. Bradley, Jr., an adjunct scholar here at Cato, is also the CEO and founder of the Institute for Energy Research. As one of the nation's leading experts on the history and regulation of energy markets, he has testified before the US Congress and the California Energy Commission, as well as lectured at numerous colleges, universities, and think tanks around the country. Bradley's views are frequently cited in the media, and his reviews and editorials have been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other national publications. As the author of seven books, most recently, Edison to Enron, Energy Markets and Political Strategies, Bradley has applied the classical liberal worldview to recent corporate controversies and energy policy debates. His Energy Primer, co-authored with Richard Fulmer, is Energy, the Master Resource. He is currently a member of the International Association for Energy Economics, the American Economic Association, Southern Economic Association, and the American Historical Association. Dr. Bradley received his PhD in Political Economy from International College, and is a recipient of the Julian L. Simon Memorial Award for his work on energy and sustainable development. Uh, next up will be Adele Morris. Uh, she is a senior fellow and policy director for climate and energy economics at the Brookings Institution. Her expertise and interests include the economics of policies related to climate change, energy, natural resources, and public finance. She joined Brookings in July 2008 from the Joint Economic Committee or the JEC of the US Congress, where she spent a year as a senior economist covering energy and climate issues. Before the JEC, Adele served nine years with the US Treasury Department as its chief natural resource economist working on climate, energy, agriculture, and radio spectrum issues. On assignment to the US Department of State in 2000, she was the lead US negotiator on land use and forestry issues in the international climate change treaty process. Prior to joining the Treasury, she served as a senior economist for environmental affairs at the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, during the development of the Kyoto Protocol. She began her career at the Office of Management and Budget, Budget where she conducted regulatory oversight of agriculture and natural resource agencies. She holds a PhD in economics from Princeton University. 
Last but not least is Katrina Rourke, who is the Senior Fellow and Energy Policy Director for the R Street Institute. Uh, there she founded and leads the Institute's energy program, which works to clarify a well-defined and limited role for government in shaping decisions about infrastructure, wholesale and retail electricity, research and development, fuel choice and diversity, and climate adaptation and mitigation. Katrina joined R Street in April of 2015, having previously founded the energy program at the American Action Forum. While there, she used the program to deliver free market energy analysis and to emphasize policy proposals consistent with a small government footprint, with particular emphasis on critiquing excessive regulation and expanding government programs. She got her start as a presidential management fellow at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She spent two years on the staff of the House Committee on Science and Technology and helped craft the first Republican-sponsored carbon tax bill. Katrina graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a Bachelor of Science in Public Health and from the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University with a Master of Public Administration. So each will speak for about 15 or 20 minutes or so, and then we will endeavor to leave time for questions at the end. But for now, let's please welcome Dr. Robert Bradley. Well, thank you very much. Let me make sure I know how to use this, so I'll hit that. Uh, it's good to be back at Cato. I have been here off and on since the 1980s. Uh, might, might have been before a few of you were born. Um, uh, I am an adjunct scholar here, and I've uh, uh, published some books with Cato and have a long association, and it's uh, really been an intellectual home for me. Uh, given Cato's mission, of advancing the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace, I thought it would be useful to begin uh, this panel by uh, looking broadly at what is a classical liberal uh, or a, a small l libertarian uh, energy policy, and then get to uh, the uh, promise and peril of the uh, current administration. I think the first uh, point uh, uh, is that uh, free market energy policy is based on private property rights, voluntary exchange, and certainly uh, the rule of law. Uh, there's a whole uh, academic tradition of free market environmentalism that I won't get into uh, here today that maybe we can get into a bit in the Q&A, uh, but I think these are the three essentials, uh, private property, voluntary exchange, and uh, the legal framework. Um, another tenet of uh, a classical liberal free market energy policy is that uh, government regulation and tax policy is uh, neutral or as neutral as it can be, uh, avoiding special government favor, uh, picking winners or losers. And uh, there's a term all of the above when it comes to energy policy. Uh, that, to me, is code for government subsidies of some energies to allow them to compete against the energies that uh, consumers uh, naturally choose. Uh, so uh, very, very much um, a barrier against cronyism or rent-seeking by, uh, by private interests. Uh, the free market energy policy is principle. Uh, the uh, uh, classical liberals don't, do not condone pro-industry regulation. One would be uh, eminent domain for common carrier, common purchaser pipelines on the state level or uh, on the federal level. Uh, uh, international oil, uh, uh, interstate uh, oil pipelines uh, receive 
uh, eminent domain uh, rights uh, if they are common carriers under current federal law. But on the state level, certainly eminent domain is uh, important. Generally, I think you can say that free market energy policy is pro-consumer and uh, pro-taxpayer and uh, uh, pro-entrepreneur in the sense of uh, private entrepreneurship versus political entrepreneurship. There's an intellectual tradition uh, behind classical liberal uh, energy policy. Uh, certainly uh, the idea of, of undesigned order, spontaneous order, uh, the results of human action but not of human design, uh, what we've learned from F.A. Hayek and uh, a number of other scholars, applies to uh, the U.S. oil and gas electricity experience. Uh, there's lots of case studies there. Um, there's also a very rich uh, historical tradition of government intervention in energy markets. Uh, and uh, government intervention, as a rule, is cumulative. Uh, it's always going from one phase to the other. It is unstable. Uh, and it is even chaotic, whether it's uh, price and allocation controls of energy resources during World War I, World War II, uh, the Korean conflict or the 19. Uh, 60s and 70s, the results have been uh, predictable. The same with uh, protectionist programs for oil uh, in particular in the United States from the 1930s forward. And I mention that because of the uh, border adjustment tax that's uh, now under consideration. I think a third point is uh, uh, the intellectual tradition of public choice economics, recognizing that there's government failure, not only market failure, and that any public policy in the real world that proposes to intervene in markets, not only do you need to uh, estimate, understand the alleged market failure, you have to uh, factor in that uh, that uh, political solutions are expensive. There's unintended consequences. They go out, go off in completely new directions. And this is a very powerful argument uh, for not intervening in the first place, uh, not having a, the qualitative decision to intervene, even if it starts off very small and uh, uh, grows later on. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, uh, history. Uh, there's theory and history that supports a, uh, a pretty much a laissez-faire uh, energy policy. Areas of uh, uh, energy policy activism, I know Katrina and um, uh, maybe Adele will deal with some of these uh, more specifically, but I listed uh, 11 of them here. The, uh, the biggest of them all, of course, is climate regulation and related spending uh, across federal agencies, uh, public land uh, policy, tax policy per energy, uh, 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 the renewable fuels uh, standard, infrastructure development, uh, including uh, certification of pipelines, and it goes on and on. And the issues you don't hear much about are interstate uh, regulation of natural gas pipelines, oil pipelines, and electricity transmission under some 1930 laws applying uh, just the just and reasonable standard. Uh, some of us uh, classical liberal scholars would very much like to see uh, 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 changes uh, uh, in FERC policy, uh, perhaps redefining what is just and reasonable. 
but uh, even getting away from that standard and uh, having uh, uh, companies enter into exit contracts with federal regulators where they uh, be become deregulated under a long-term legal contract. That is another lecture. Uh, major themes. I would say that Trump uh, energy climate policy has great free market promise, maybe the most since Ronald Reagan, uh, at least at the beginning of the Reagan administration where he uh, 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 proposed to abolish the Department of Energy. That didn't quite happen. I would say the Trump energy climate policy uh, term you can use is that it is populist. It is pro-consumer, pro-taxpayer, and pro-market entrepreneur. Uh, fossil fuel liberalization, which I think is the uh, a thrust behind the current uh, new thinking, uh, would certainly be a reset for U.S. and international climate policy. This is a very big area that uh, uh, we'll be talking about for the rest of this uh, seminar. And I would say that fossil fuel liberation is a key uh, fiscal policy upside for deficit reduction and debt retirement. Uh, aggressively leasing uh, oil, gas, uh, minerals on, the, on public lands, I think uh, uh, there's some very robust estimates of what this could mean over the next decade, maybe as much as 100 or more uh, billion dollars. Uh, but also think in terms of privatizing, liquidating the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, uh, that's uh, a multi-billion dollar uh, asset. And even privatizing federal lands, uh, where you privatize not only the subsoil and the mineral rights, but also the surface, uh, uh, could be just a huge revenue source to transition out of uh, the huge deficit retired debt. And this is something I think maybe we won't see it in the first term uh, or this, uh, uh, the next four years, but I think it'll be on the table uh, as a, uh, a great way to reduce uh, deficits. Uh, a big question mark for classical liberals, uh, for uh, uh, conservatives, Republicans, limited government types, the border adjustment tax, what we've seen so far from uh, Paul Ryan. Uh, uh, I don't know a lot about it, and uh, I'll be interested to uh, find out more details. Uh, energy policy historically considered, I think you can say that from the beginning of the industry through the 1920s, it was very free market. From the 30s through the 60s, it was very protectionist, helping the domestic oil industry in particular with uh, market demand proration by the states and having tariffs and quotas against imported oil. Uh, no question about it, the industry was helped at the expense of uh, consumers. And uh, but beginning in the 70s with the energy crisis, it was really a, a punitive era uh, uh, for the oil, uh, oil and gas industry with price controls, uh, conservationism, you know, if we're running out of oil and gas, gee, the government needs to step in and have conservation policies. Uh, and there was a, lo a loss of major tax preferences uh, in the 70s, uh, too. And uh, um, after price controls were eliminated on oil and then natural gas, uh, the, the punitive era continued, but for not only oil and gas, but also coal. Coal was actually advantaged 
uh, by price controls on uh, oil and particularly uh, natural gas. Uh, but coal uh, had, uh, came under uh, 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 energy regulation uh, very much in, in all sorts of different ways with the whole climate change movement. So really from the 70s to the present, it's been an anti-fossil fuel uh, energy policy. Uh, with the Trump era, uh, this uh, could well uh, change his era of energy populism uh, fossil fuel freedom, really allowing consumers to uh, purchase uh, uh, oil, gas, and coal uh, without any uh, particular government uh, penalty. So we could be at the beginning of the most government neutral energy policy in uh, more than a century, or about a century. Uh, so it's very, uh, very significant. But keep in mind the border adjustment tax, uh, uh, continuing the ethanol mandate, which might uh, occur under the new administration, these things uh, are, are still uh, barriers to a free market energy policy. I think we need a whole rethink of climate policy in the new uh, policy era. I think the uh, social cost of carbon uh, is uh, uh, something that's it's, it, uh, it's, it's very imprecise. It should not uh, be used for public policy, and you can tweak assumptions, and uh, you can get the social cost of carbon way down, get it to negative. Uh, you can uh, get it to zero or negative. Uh, you can use a little higher interest rate. You can assume that it applies to the United States and not uh, international, uh, is not international. You can also assume the benefits the benefit side of carbon dioxide, CO2 fertilization. If you add that to the equation, uh, your social cost becomes uh, uh, quite changed. And I would argue, and, and I know Pat Michaels is, a, uh, is the expert here, that recent scientific developments that have reduced climate sensitivity overall are, are, would uh, point toward a lower cost of, uh, social cost of carbon. The other thing we have to factor in is the social cost of government or social cost of climate policy. We know that's a negative. So uh, um, to me, that should somehow offset the social cost of carbon, assuming it's positive. The idea that uh, it's an insurance policy, that CO, pricing CO2 is an insurance policy, I think is particularly weak. Uh, when you buy an insurance policy, you know what your premiums are, they have to be affordable, and the redemption value uh, has to be known. But it's exactly the opposite when it comes to uh, 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 certainly unilateral U.S. actions to uh, uh, price carbon. Finally, there's the opportunity cost. Uh, some of us classical liberals wish that we could redirect all the effort going toward pricing carbon uh, to, something, to something else, not only government-wise, but even in the private sector, civil society. What if Pew, Rockefeller, all the major private foundations, in, in, instead of spending tens of millions of dollars a year on climate, what if they could uh, redirect that uh, to here and now problems? Um, um, uh, that would be, to me, a double win. Now, for some of us, I, sometimes I feel like my job in life is to cancel out the Joe Roms over at uh, 
uh, Center for American Progress. And I've suggested uh, to Joe, at least in an email, that I want to come to Washington and let's both flip hamburgers, do something uh, constructive for one day, and not just be trying to cancel each other out. It's a waste. Uh, there's other here and now issues that we need uh, uh, to address rather than uh, climate change. Uh, if you wanted to ask me what would be one thing that would make the world better in the energy field that we could substitute for the, uh, to me, futile cr crusade of carbon dioxide, I would say it would be a movement to privatize the subsoil in Mexico and in uh, countries around the world where you allow the surface owner to have mineral rights all the way to the center of the earth, where you democratize wealth and Mexico would look a lot more like Texas. In Texas, we have lots of mineral uh, 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 private own owners of, the, of oil and gas. Uh, it's led to a lot of prosperities, and most of the foundations in Texas are based on uh, oil and gas philanthropy. Uh, and this, to me, would be a wonderful thing to do, is to privatize energy assets around the world, get them to citizens, get them to landowners, to, uh, uh, to um, uh, make the world a, a better place. And if Mexico had public policies, more free market public policies, they sh certainly wouldn't have to worry about a wall, would they? That would be a great strategy against the wall is for, for, the, for Mexico and other Latin American countries to uh, turn toward private ownership. How are we doing on time? Uh, four minutes. Four minutes, okay. Um, global lukewarming, I think it's a term a lot of us uh, uh, can use. Uh, I think from the beginning, uh, Pat Michaels has been a global lukewarmer. I remember you sent me something that you wrote in the 80s talking about, yes, there's a human influence on climate, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's warming, but it's just not uh, real high, it's not catastrophic. The uh, feedback effects aren't strongly uh, positive. Uh, and that's a view, I think, that the, it's where the science is trending. Like, like a lot of things, the truth is in the middle, and I think the truth will be a climate sensitivity in the one to two uh, degree Celsius range for a, a doubling of CO2 uh, in, in, in equilibrium. Um, the, the less the climate sensitivity, it's not, it's not only there's less of a problem, it also means there's less you can do about it. Uh, and so this to me is a, is a, is a happy consequence. Uh, I don't wake up in the middle of the night uh, worrying about climate. Maybe, maybe a lot of people do. I don't know. Um, but let me talk a little bit about a carbon tax and I'll conclude. Um, to me, a carbon tax, um, uh, it has all sorts of problems. Uh, I, I put it once, uh, a penny, a metric ton is, uh, is too high. $200 uh, tax per metric ton is not enough. And the reason that I uh, reject even a one cent carbon tax is, it is a qualitative intervention. It is something brand new in the economy that will only grow and grow and become more and more uh, politicized. But the question is, uh, if you're in favor of a carbon tax, what is the right tax? If it's too high or too low, 
then that's a reason for not having it uh, at all. Uh, border adjustments, the idea of a carbon tax being simple, uh, uh, what goods, how much, how adjusted, if we have 190 or so political uh, jurisdictions around the world, uh, really to have a, glo uh, to have a, 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 a global uh, carbon tax regime, you're gonna have to be pricing a variety of goods per country and you're gonna have all these interactions and you would need a, um, uh, an environmental pope, as William Nordhaus would say, uh, to implement this. Equity adjustments. Uh, 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 taxing fossil fuels uh, is a regressive tax. Well, how are you going to adjust it? All these things uh, uh, point to what F.A. Hayek calls a, a fatal conceit. Uh, only with perfect knowledge and perfect political implementation would we uh, uh, be able to get what we're, uh, we're told we should do in the textbooks, uh, in, the, in the classrooms, uh, but the real world is very different. Uh, the idea of economics optimum versus politics. How do you take politics out of this? Of course you don't. Um, and taxing fossil fuels, it's discriminatory not only for the individual, but it discriminates against the hydrocarbon, the oil, gas, and coal capital of the world, which is the United States. It is an America last uh, energy policy, and I think the new administration realizes this. I'm going to conclude uh, James Hansen on mitigation uh, about uh, 11 years ago. He had an article in the New York Times Review where he says, we have at most 10 years, not 10 years to decide upon action, but 10 years to alter fundamentally the trajectory of global greenhouse emissions. Now, when this came due, he came out and said that we've gone past the, uh, the safe point and we need to have negative CO2 emissions. Uh, we need to extract CO2 from the air. It's now required. A couple months later, he came out and said, uh, that, well, we have a little bit more time. Now, I mention this uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the father, the scientist, the father of global warming uh, alarm, uh, uh, clearly the science is very unsettled, and he's not really sure even himself uh, where we are. But more importantly, the more that uh, the atmospheric concentration of CO2 increases, the more that mitigation effects, uh, uh, really, they matter less and less. And the, the debate really shifts from mitigation to adaptation. And I'm wondering, when are we going to get to the point where the climate uh, alarmists of the models tell us, well, there's not much we can do with mitigation. Now we're going to have to turn to adaptation. And to me, the major, the number one adaptation policy would be a free market. Uh, in goods and services and people to allow individuals around the world to get to the climate that they want to get to. Um, so with that, I will uh, conclude. Uh, and uh, Trump energy policy, a lot more promise and pearl, but, uh, peril, but we'll have to see. Thank you. Well, thank
thanks very much for the invitation to be here at the Cato Institute. It's my first appearance here, so I'm making my Cato debut. Thanks very much for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to take a, a pretty straight-ahead look at what does the Trump administration say they want to accomplish with their energy policy. So let's just look at it. This is from the White House website, and these are their goals, and there is a lot we can work with there. We want to... Uh, embrace shale oil and gas environmentally responsibly, but you know, make the resource available. And we want to protect clean air and water. So I'm going to go through a couple of these and look at the data and the analysis on what directions those might take. And I really want to start from looking at the data analysis because I think the right diagnosis of the issues leads to the right treatment, which is the right policy intervention or not, as you were just describing. So I want to talk about the limitations of the Obama clean, uh, Climate Action Plan, particularly the Clean Power Plan, but I want to do that in a way that motivates an alternative approach. And I want to look at what's going on with coal. Can we revive coal? And if so, what what do we really mean by a revival? And I'll talk about the policies, I think, that are implied in there. So let's take the climate action plan that President Obama put forward. There were a number of policy dimensions to that, everything from the diplomacy to the energy efficiency standards, um, measures on methane and HFCs. Um, the, really, the flagship approach, though, is the reducing carbon pollution from power plants, and that means the Clean Power Plan. This was promulgated by the EPA using authority under the Clean Air Act that was upheld by the Supreme Court. The EPA chose Section 111D of the Clean Air Act to support its rulemaking, and they went through quite an extensive process. I mean, it was, I, I, I put two years, but I mean, really, it was in the making for most of the Obama administration. And the final rule has been stayed in the Supreme Court, and, and the Trump administration has made every indication that they plan to do what they can to, to revoke that rule, either substantially changing it or, or otherwise suspending that rulemaking process. Um, now, that was a big deal, though. That rule would have started the control of greenhouse gases in the biggest stationary source sector we have, which is the power industry. And that comprises almost a third of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So that's probably the biggest environmental rulemaking of my career. And as Mr. Russo mentioned, I started my career at the White House reviewing environmental and resource rules. So I, I have a pretty good sense of what a massive undertaking this particular rule was. And, you know, most of the carbon emissions that come from the electricity sector come from coal. Uh, we use a lot of different fuels in our electricity sector, but most of the carbon comes from coal because really the two fossil fuels we use in the electric power sector, which are natural gas and coal, um, coal has much more emissions per unit of energy. So what looks like a war on coal really is the relative carbon intensity of the two fuels. And that's my little chart down there showing the, I'm going to come back to that, the relative intensities of those two fuels. So the Clean Power Plan, EPA intended to reduce U.S. emissions from that sector by 33% relative to 2005 levels by 2030. So that was a substantial reduction, but we'd actually gone 
fair amount towards that goal even by 2012. So we were really kind of, uh, the, the agency was really trying to reinforce existing trends. Now there are a few peculiarities using Clean Air Act authority, and one is all the implementation has to be done um, by states, and that's how the legislation works. And what we know from the analysis of that rule, now each state could choose a rate-based standard, which is emissions per kilowatt hour generated, or they could choose a mass-based standard, which is a total tons of CO2 that state could emit in each uh, year in which they were, their emissions were bound. And we know that the economics, the economic implications of those targets were very different in, very, in different states. And here's a map showing what happens if they choose the mass-based targets. And you can just take, pick a state, and I'm gonna switch to a chart of the rate-based standards, and you can see how different the implied price signals were to reach the state targets, depending on what kind of target they chose for their compliance. So literally, the incentives to reduce emissions were all over the map um, in that rule. And you know, every ton of CO2 is gonna create the same amount of damages. You might quibble about what the damages are, but they're all the same once they get into the atmosphere. So there's no good economic reason to create different incentives in different states. And remember, this is only one sector. So we've got one set of incentives in that sector and a completely different set of incentives in other sectors. The other issue is that this was going to take a long time. It was going to be 2022 in the best of possible time frames to get that compliance period even to start. That's when the binding commitment started was in 2022. And that was before this day and certainly probably um, a rosy litigation scenario involved in that timeline. So we also had this issue of what was it going to accomplish? And one way to measure that is how much did the Clean Power Plan get us relative to the commitments we had in the Paris Agreement? Now, I know the Trump administration has expressed uh, some skepticism about that agreement, but so far the U.S. is still on record as wanting to achieve 26% to 28% lower emissions of greenhouse gases relative to 2005 by 2025. The clean power plant would have, would have gotten us part of the way there, that's that middle wedge, but still there, were, there was not enough um, policy making underway that would have gotten us all the way to that pledge. So in sum, I would say despite the best efforts of EPA and despite extraordinary work by the, um, the good people of the agency, we were stuck with an authority that was intrinsically economically inefficient. And arguably environmentally inadequate because it only covered one sector. It created all sorts of uncertainties related to litigation, the kinds of standards, the investment uncertainty, and the disparate nature of this different state actions. And some of those states may not have you know, achieved their targets in anything that looked like efficient policy. And it was obviously very slow and not really providing consistent incentives for years to come. And moreover, the policy doesn't have any way to uh, ameliorate some of the disproportionate burdens. And you mentioned low-income households. And we might be concerned about competitiveness. And there was nothing in the Clean Air Act to do about that. So I would say I would sum it up as being a, a weak tool on a number of fronts. 
Now, I'm going I'm to pivot now to talk about coal, and I'm going to come back and talk about the policy implications of all of this. So we know the Trump administration wants to revive coal, right? So the question is, like, what's going on in the sector? What's been driving the declines in production of U.S. coal? And what are the forecasts for ch any change in those trends? So let's just look at what's been happening in U.S. coal production. It's been going down almost every year for the last eight years. It's projected by 2016 to go down another 16%. So really, we've just seen a precipitous drop off in the, um, in the production of coal from the United States. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that that are well documented in the literature. Certainly, electricity demand has been slow. Uh, the growth in it has been slow, rather. Um, the low-cost natural gas is a huge part of that story. I'll show you the data on that. The cost of renewables has come down substantially. There have been other environmental policies, in particular mercury air toxic standards, that have played a role in retirement of particularly older and dirtier coal plants. And the prospect of climate policy on the horizon certainly matters in terms of the forward-looking agenda of companies that have very long-life capital. They're not going to want to invest in a new coal plant if they think there's any prospect of climate regulation well past this administration. And then in central Appalachia, which we think are, is an area of particular concern in the sector, we see technological changes in the nature of the seams relatively low productivity and competitiveness uh, from that region, and, and weak export markets in particular. We know that coal is integrally related to the power sector, and here's just showing how much coal in the U.S. relies on the power sector and where that decline has come from. And we know that in the power sector, natural gas has played a surging role, as have renewables, and now natural gas supersedes coal as the primary fuel for generation in the US. I mentioned natural gas prices. There's hardly a more dramatic story in commodity markets than the birth of shale gas and, and the fracking revolution. And we see that. I mean, you shift out supply and prices fall. And there it is, right there. And you know, the president has committed to uh, embracing shale gas, as I mentioned earlier, and that's going to do nothing but reinforce the low price of gas and its effect on coal as its primary competitor in the power market. So you might think, well, what about exports? Surely we can do something with our coal besides burn it domestically. But the export markets have been very weak, and we've seen two years of double-digit declines in exports, and the forecast is not so great. So I think relying on export-led growth in the coal sector is, is highly misguided. <clears throat> and I want to stress that this pain is real for the people in coal country. These are people who've lost their jobs, who don't have a growth sector for their economy. They're losing severance tax revenue and royalties. It's undermining the fiscal system of their uh, state and local governments. This is a big deal. But the decline in employment actually began long before the Obama administration. And there's a big story having to do with improved productivity that really reduced the need for workers in that sector, even while 
um, production levels were going up. And now that production levels are going down, the prospect for employment growth in that sector, I think, is quite grim. And we see it especially in Appalachia. And you know, the, the, the blue lines are the projections by the US Energy Information Administration without any clean power plan. And the red lines are the projection were the clean power plan to be put in place and extended past its uh, original target dates of 2030. And we see that even in the baseline projection with no climate policy uh, in that sector, growth was expected to be flat. What the Clean Power Plan did was re, uh, reinforce that. And we see, especially in Appalachia in the upper right-hand corner, really production levels were declining anyways. And that's because, like I said, coal is carbon intensive, it has lots of substitutes, and, um, and those substitutes have become a lot cheaper. So if we had any kind of climate policy, we would see coal decline. Um, this is an example of a modeling study by EIA from 2014 that shows what would happen if you had a carbon tax of $25 going up over inflation, and you just see coal getting creamed. And this is a result very robust across any modeling of anything that looks like a, an economically efficient climate policy. And notice there's no carbon capture and storage deployed in this modeling result. That means that this clean coal technology that we think we're going to rely on to revive coal doesn't even become economical at these kinds of carbon price signals. So I don't see any way that that's going to be the way out. So my point here is we need to have a policy that bolsters the well-being of people in coal country who have kept the lights on but who are suffering. And I think there's nothing so far in the administration agenda that directly addresses the needs of the, of the miners and their pensions and their health care benefits and all the other issues facing those uh, communities. So I'm going to conclude with telling you what I think a better policy would look like. And I'm not a, I, you know, I'm an economist, so I want to talk about the economics of climate policy. I'm going to leave the debate uh, on the science to others, but I'm pretty convinced that it is infeasible for the Republican Party to have a no climate policy um, approach. I think they're going to need an alternative. And most of America, and certainly most of scientists, um, believe we should be taking action. And I, I would welcome a discussion amongst a conservative uh, group of what that action should look like. And in the spirit of neutrality, I think that policy should put a price on carbon that affects all of the gases, all of the sectors, not picking winners and losers by who's producing what with which fuel, harnessing those market forces, and designing it in a way that both helps the disproportionately burdened and is a diplomatically powerful tool that the US can use to leverage its action into action by other countries. And that, in short, is a price on carbon, changing the relative prices of different fuels in proportion to how damaging they are to the environment. And we've done extensive modeling on how to design these policies, how to mitigate concerns about the effects on poor households. I've done a lot of work. We actually know quite a bit about what the likely economic outcomes of such a policy would be. 
I'll give you just like a couple slides, but there's a raft of, of peer-reviewed economic literature on this topic. We modeled a few years back a, a carbon tax of $16 per ton. That's per a ton of CO2, to be clear, rising at 4% over inflation. And we find that we would have a linearly growing revenue stream that would dramatically decrease emissions. And that, that price level is consistent with doing pro-growth things that I think would be very consistent with what the Trump administration has in mind. They're going to need revenue for tax reform. And actually, the peer-reviewed evidence suggests using carbon tax revenue to reduce other taxes can greatly reduce the macroeconomic costs of the policy and certainly should be something that's part of the discussion of tax reform. And if you don't want your regulatory reform to be short-lived, you need to find new authority to control greenhouse gases. You're not going to get anything like an agreement to repeal EPA authority over greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act unless you have a solid proposal for an alternative that's at least, if not more, environmentally effective. And I think business interests are increasingly understanding they need to make investments, and they're willing to make low-carbon investments, but they need a reasonable policy structure in which to do that. And they might be particularly concerned about a proliferation of state-level policies, which we're already seeing under development. And I think that if the Trump administration has no climate policy, it is certainly in the future for states to take action. And I don't think anybody thinks that a disparate set of state-level policies really makes sense. Um, moreover, I think, again, it's one thing to say you think climate change is a hoax. But when you get into the diplomatic situations, the G20, the UN Framework Convention, um, any number of multilateral fora, and you are the United States, and you are speaking for your greatest country on the face of the earth, you have to engage when countries care deeply about climate change. And just saying it's a hoax is really not a tenable diplomatic approach. And so then the question is, what do you offer? And I think there are very conservative, consistent approaches. And finally, I think that if you had a carbon tax, you would have the resources to invest in coal country and make those folks better off. I think I've shown you that we're not going to revive coal with market forces, but we could revive coal country with the right kind of investments in the people and their communities and making them uh, better off and protected from the downside risks, not just of climate policy, which I've shown you, but from the market forces themselves that can cause so much disruption. So I'm going to close there. I have a lot of material on my website, my research, my other writings. This is a particularly accessible piece on carbon tax design. And I've written a number of other papers, uh, in, including a co-edited volume on implementing a US carbon tax. So I'd be happy to answer any questions about that. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Katrina Rourke. I'm here from the R Street Institute. Thanks very much for including me. I'm looking forward to sharing maybe a little bit of a different take uh, from another libertarian organization on what libertarian energy policy can look like. Um, 
And I'm hoping to use this as a chance to stitch together uh, the conversations that have come out of the previous two presenters um, and speak out a little bit of a higher level uh, than Adele just did. Uh, so the question before us is Trump's energy plan one of promise or one of peril? And I find it a bit difficult to answer this question because we don't know a whole lot about what the energy policy of this administration is going to look like. So let's start with what we know. Uh, Trump has promised to revive coal jobs and perhaps invest in clean coal technology. Adele laid out um, some of that approach previously. Uh, promote domestic oil and natural gas production, um, partially through liberalizing the treatment of public lands uh, involving the states. Um, build domestic energy infrastructure, at least get behind uh, the, the two most controversial projects we've seen recently, uh, Keystone XL and Dakota Access. Maybe we can accept uh, that similar treatment for infrastructure will follow. Uh, eliminate harmful and unnecessary policies. Here he includes the Climate Action Plan and the Waters of the United States rule. Uh, cancel Paris, uh, which is sort of a tenuous promise um, to either uh, back out of international climate agreements or at least not care very much that we're part of them. Uh, there's certainly a bit of infighting uh, amongst new administration officials, um, the transition team, and Trump himself about uh, what to expect there. Uh, develop $50 trillion in untapped shale oil and natural gas reserves. Um, if I may, this is a little bit of fake news. Uh, that is a, a generous overestimate, but uh, undoubtedly speaks to uh, what is a really exciting possibility to develop domestic resources. Uh, he wants more broadly to open up federal lands, uh, starting with lifting the moratorium on coal leasing, and perhaps consider changes to that five-year offshore leasing plan that has been relatively controversial. Um, pursue energy independence, that's something that I'm hoping we can unpack a little bit here today. Energy independence is one of those phrases that means different things to different people. Um, and if we're facing an administration led by uh, President Trump who thinks that protectionism is maybe an important policy, what does energy independence uh, really mean there? Um, and then finally, protect clean air and clean water. So there's a lot beyond that. Uh, that we should be considering as an energy agenda from an administration that's hoping to create jobs, um, promote a lot of job growth in different sectors of the economy, in different regions of the economy, allow states to have more emphasis on what happens within their borders. Uh, so a, a lot of gray area, and I hope to avoid the trap of um, putting intentions uh, on the part of this administration. I don't want to fill in gaps here, and I certainly don't want to fall prey uh, to the hyperbolic explanations we've seen so far about promise versus peril. Uh, so forgive me if I do, and please call me out. Uh, I'm going to start by asking two questions that I think create the opportunity to have some perilous outcomes in energy policy. Um, the first question I have is, uh, does this administration believe that markets work? And I ask that question because we've seen signs that the administration is interested in effectuating something like an industrial policy, uh, much like the Obama administration had put forward, but picking different winners. Uh, and I think that because of technological innovation, 
Um, and generally, our preference that uh, consumers choose and markets pick winners best, uh, we should be wary of uh, any, any signs that we're picking winners through federal policy. Um, again, that peril of protectionism comes in here. Uh, do we believe that markets work and we can trade internationally? Or are we going to um, sort of back away from participation in global energy markets at a time that we really stand to benefit? Uh, and then the second question, what is the role of the executive? Um, one of the really great projects we run at the R Street Institute um, is a governance project that we've um, coined Make Congress Great Again uh, to restore more authority to the legislature. Uh, here in energy policy, I think we've seen, and environmental policy too, I think we've seen the legislature back away from responsibilities um, and focus more on the political debate than policy substance. And I am uh, always concerned that the executive is going to be running the show here, especially at a time that we need to update a lot of underlying legislation and authority. Uh, and often, I think, question whether the authorities that we have extended in broad terms are appropriate to a functional government. So peril aside, uh, plenty of promise. Uh, Administrator Pruitt, uh, he spoke with his new staff at EPA yesterday, and he seems fully dedicated to a revised and more defined role for EPA that gives states credit for what they deserve credit for uh, and gives them the responsibility to control the environment and the environmental quali quality within their state and emphasize the trade-offs that are important to people who live uh, where they live. Secretary Perry seems pretty devoted to uh, a Department of Energy uh, that cares about innovation, though we have less detail there on what he's intending to do. Um, I know that there's plenty of people from the Institute for Energy Research trying to make it work out there, so uh, we'll get more information soon, I trust. Uh, Secretary Zinke believes strongly in a conservation agenda uh, and permitting uh, the development of our resources uh, and thinking about what that looks like in terms of involving the states uh, in being more... Um, more involved in their own interests, being able to express their own interests in the treatment of their lands. So let's get down to some of those items um, that Dr. Bradley listed out. Uh, so regulation, I think we see a lot of promise on the way this administration is going to treat regulation. Um, part of that is just that as a community, I think conservatives have done a pretty good job questioning a lot of the underlying authorities that have informed some regulatory overreach in the prior administration. Uh, so I think we can expect some really neat changes to uh, NEPA and how climate is considered in land use and leasing um, across government. I expect that we'll see strong guidance from the Council on Environmental Quality backing us out of such a policy. Uh, again, the Clean Power Plan, I think we can anticipate it will be withdrawn for review and substantially changed by this administration. Uh, it was more than likely illegal, which is why the Supreme Court stated it. And so uh, this will allow the EPA to move forward with regulation if they choose to do so that's within their authorities. Uh, Waters of the United States, again, withdrawn for review. and. I guess as he signed it already, directing the Army Corps of Engineers to consider again uh, what waters of the United States means. Um, here is where I really care about the role of the executive versus the legislature. I think we all agree that we need some guidance from the legislature uh, in this particular area. 
Um, cool opportunities uh, to consider changes to other items with, under the Clean Air Act, not just climate, but we care a lot about national ambient air quality standards. That's something else that's overdue for amendment. We're seeing a lot of areas in non-attainment. Uh, the next time we ratchet ozone emissions, if we bring them down, national parks won't be in attainment. Uh, that suggests we've got some problems here running against the natural limits of regulation and our ability to control pollution. And so thinking creatively about ways to get around that, uh, I think that's overdue. Um, so last Congress, yeah, last Congress, Senators Hatch and McCaskill had this really great idea to permit um, early action compacts uh, to achieve nationally national ambient air quality standards uh, in local areas or states or tribal lands. Um, that's a really cool and innovative idea, and I think there's appetite for rethinking authorities along those lines. Uh, the renewable fuel standard, oof, I don't know what's going to happen with that one. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can uh, see choice prevail and eliminate the ability of the EPA to mandate blending. Uh, but again, remains to be seen. Uh, capture is real. Uh, and then a final really cool opportunity um, to look at the science of dose response. I know that this has been such a powerful issue that's motivated the House Science Committee. Um, and in some areas of the dose response science, we know that what we're operating from is grossly incorrect, particularly in the area of radiation. So this is an exciting opportunity for a new administration to rethink the way it approaches certain aspects of regulation, and I hope call on Congress uh, to reform some authorities if that's necessary. Uh, I got 10 more minutes, so I'm going to be quick here. Uh, land access, I think I touched on that a little bit. We can involve states better. I think that is a, a sure sign of promise from this administration. Uh, the question of subsidies is always a live one. Are we going to roll back loan guarantees, uh, tax preferences across the energy sector, or are we going to be punitive? Um, it remains to be seen, but there's plenty of opportunity to reduce spending. Uh, and reduce the distortions that come with incentives that happen out of the market. Um, I think there's obviously going to be a lot of debate within the infrastructure bill that could yield dividends for the energy economy. Um, we expect to see uh, greater interest in investing in national infrastructure like the pipelines. Um, but we have to be careful about spending on this infrastructure or removing the regulatory roadblocks to the construction of this infrastructure today. We know that we need it. Uh, the market is asking for greater access to energy infrastructure. It's not money that's holding that back. Uh, it's regulatory roadblocks. And so finding appropriate balance is going to be pretty important. Um, our research and development and energy innovation agenda, wow, that's a live issue. I think it's a pretty exciting one for us, too. The Department of Energy uh, <laughs> has, uh, I think, failed in the last administration to care about what the market wants to see. And so um, this is a cool opportunity to think about reforming the innovation agenda uh, to, I guess, back out of what seems interesting to a bunch of PhDs who are focusing on applied research that will have no marketable ends, uh, and refocus on basic research and development, and then the goal of trying to provide the market with what they actually want to see. Um, so that's a really exciting opportunity. And again, I hope some of your staff will come up with good ideas at the Department of Energy. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about possibilities in the electricity sector. We don't talk about that a lot at the federal level because that's mostly governed by the states. Um, but we're seeing a lot of cool opportunities coming out 
of states to promote competition and allow consumer choice. So um, I'm thinking in particular about some pieces of legislation and some cool policy discussions that are happening in states like Missouri and Colorado and Minnesota and Virginia. 60% um, of Fortune 100 companies have energy efficiency or renewable energy targets, and uh, most states don't have clear guidance on whether they can access renewable energy from an entity other than their utility. So this is a, a really exciting issue and plenty of opportunity to find out what the market actually does want to see, especially if we're focusing on stripping out other kinds of incentives elsewhere in the government footprint. But also plenty of warning signs, so we're seeing uh, bailouts of nuclear facilities that are rendered uncompetitive by a lot of the signals that you were talking about earlier related to the price of natural gas. Uh, those bailouts are, of course, discouraging, uh, and we see similar uh, likelihoods for bailouts across the state of Ohio for coal facilities. Um, in Minnesota, we saw Excel recently, I think just last week, uh, is now allowed to build a natural gas facility and pass along the full costs to their customers. That's a new thing for the state of Minnesota. Uh, their restructuring experiment might be failing before our very eyes, and uh, we want to make sure it doesn't, because markets work, even in energy. Um, and now I guess I'll talk a little bit about climate. Um, I know that that's an issue that we're going to be digging into. Um, I, um, I, don't, I don't think that we're uh, in mortal peril here. I think that this administration um, so far is unpacking some of the more problematic aspects of the Obama administration's climate action plan and will hopefully put us on the right track. Um, I do think that <laughs> a, a revenue neutral price on carbon with preemption for regulation across government uh, governing anything related to greenhouse gas emissions is a great policy, one that has very de minimis likelihood in the current political environment, but nonetheless something that we should be talking about uh, sitting in the policy community and trying to evaluate what the best prospects are for national policy here. Uh, and so I do think that that's an important aspect to this discussion, and I look forward to engaging in it. I also want to just briefly mention um, the perceived problems with backing out of the Paris Agreement um, in terms of our responsibilities to our diplomatic partners. I think we talk a lot about the problems related to greenhouse gas emissions for developing countries, um, and very seldom about the problems related to restricting emissions for people who don't have access to power. And that's not a question that I think we've answered responsibly in the diplomatic debate yet, and it might be something that we do consider uh, in the next four years, or eight. Um, okay, some parting thoughts. The American public uh, is pretty on the ball in regards to energy and the trade-offs between different fuels. Um, they vote for choice with their dollars where they can, um, and they broadly support government action to support all sorts of forms of energy. Uh, what they want is cheap energy and clean energy. They don't really care about the debate between wind and coal or wind and natural gas or nuclear and geothermal. They don't see it as trade-offs. They just want their lights to turn on. Uh, and they think very little about where their energy comes from. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and this guy gave a statistic that has to be fake because you can't measure it, but the average American thinks about energy about six minutes a year. Um, so we have to be mindful that they're just not that interested in, um, I guess, this like 
heated debate about the sources of energy. They're really interested in abundance and affordability. And I think we can acknowledge that there are tensions and trade-offs there, um, but innovation is making those tensions and trade-offs uh, a little bit more fuzzy as time goes on. Um, finally, we have really tremendous potential here uh, to shape an energy policy that embraces markets, choice, competition, innovation, and abundance. Uh, and that's not a bad package. Uh, we also face a not insignificant threat that our energy policy will be designed and manufactured to benefit discrete fuel sources that we already know how to use and have clear and defined costs at the expense of using these technologies that, um, at the expense of using these technologies that innovators are bringing to market every day. Uh, and so an industrial policy that picks energy that we already know is cheap is not better than an industrial policy that's designed to make other forms of energy cheap. They're both industrial policy. They both exclude market actors from making the decisions that they want to make about the power they want to receive. And so uh, if we successfully avoid the temptation to pick winners uh, and we don't impose the assumptions of winners and losers on the marketplace through federal policy, uh, we'll be in good shape. So do that, pair back some regulations, subsidies, and mandates, um, and do that in a durable way, I guess I should say, so that the next administration can't just add them back in. Uh, and we're all set. Thank you. All right, uh, as promised, we did leave time for questions. Um, <clears throat> but I'm going to need you to please uh, wait to be called on. We do have folks with microphones, I believe. I believe we do. We will need to have microphones so that the audience at home can hear. I think that's coming. Uh, while those are being wrangled, um, <clears throat> you will wait for said microphone so, um, and finally announce your name and affiliation. Uh, we will have Jeopardy rules in play, which is to say that you will uh, state your response in the form of a question, not in a speech. Um, and now I think we have a speaker over here in the white shirt there. Yeah. Is that on? Let's assume it is. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Kevin Douglas. I'm a faculty member at George Mason University. Um, my question is for Mr. Bradley primarily, but for anyone else who has uh, insight on it, please feel free to answer. Um, I'd like to know, you brought up the idea of the federal government transferring land to either private parties or to the states to give an opportunity for um, mineral, mineral rights to be bought more easily uh, when companies want to develop on, on those lands. One, what's the likelihood of the Trump administration, what do you think the likelihood is of the Trump administration embracing that kind of a policy of actually trying to divest itself of the vast amounts of federal land that's controlled in the West in particular, um, and, and how many I guess, roadblocks to development, would that really get out of the way? Well, the Trump administration uh, embraced a study um, uh, by an uh, economics professor at LSU on uh, what the increased uh, revenues from royalties from oil, gas, and coal could be on federal lands with an aggressive leasing policy. And uh, his estimate was very robust, something like $150 billion over 10 years. Trump administration uh, looked at that and came up with their own estimate, I believe, of $95 billion. So I think their strategy is going to be to aggressively lease to maximize revenue. 
Now, Cato is in the business of looking at uh, ought versus is, and uh, perhaps this would be a, uh, uh, a proposal for the uh, Trump administration or any administration on down the line when uh, deficit reduction and retiring debt becomes very, very important. And it's a question of cutting Social Security or privatizing uh, federal lands. I think the, uh, uh, the answer will be obvious. Uh, and the idea would be to sell uh, the surface land and the mineral rights. They could be done together or separately. Uh, you could have an environmental group uh, owning, uh, being the high bidder for the surface land and, and in energy companies being the high bidders for the, uh, the royalties underneath. So there could be uh, some coexistence there. Uh, but it's a, it's a very exciting opportunity, and I think it's the easiest way and the most painless way for the federal government to uh, retire our, our debt, which is now, what, uh, almost $20 trillion? That's scary. So can, can I jump in on that? Sure. Do I need to? Um, so let's take a look at this idea of leasing additional federal lands for, say, coal production. I just showed you that coal production in the United States has been down, down, down years in a row, right? And projections are no better. We're seeing the reduction of production of coal from existing mines. It's hard for me to understand why people are going to bid a lot of money on currently unmined areas invest a lot of money in preparing those mines for production when they already have underutilized capacity at existing mines. To me, that just defies economic logic. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with the LSU study, but I have to just look at the supply and demand in the market and say, I don't see it. And so I think there's maybe a little bit more burden of proof to be had about these enormous revenue projections. I do think that on existing producing lands, we could have better royalty arrangements from that, those producers. And some uh, co-authors and I just put out a piece in the magazine Science, uh, I think it came out in December, talking about potential reforms to the federal co-leasing uh, policy. And, and I, I would um, endorse the Trump administration to look at those rules. And I think they have existing authority to reform them. Well, I just don't see how they're going to get much revenue from land where there's no demand for the product from that land. I mean, like I said, they're already laying off people in the most productive existing areas in the Powder River Basin. So if they're already laying off people and reducing production from existing mines that are highly productive and already built out and already have the infrastructure and the rail lines and everything else, why is somebody going to go to a whole separate area that doesn't have that infrastructure, build out a whole new mine, and take out a bunch of coal for which we're already seeing dramatically reduced demand? It just doesn't make any economic sense. Can I respond? Yeah, sure. Well, I think the, uh, the majority of the, uh, the great majority of the estimate is for oil and gas. Uh, coal would be different. Uh, uh, the price could be very low. We're going to have a free market transaction, and we'll see what companies uh, buy it for. But certainly, if we can move away from the Obama administration's premise of pricing carbon, that is going to increase the uh, in-ground 
uh, value of oil, gas, and coal, and it's going to be a more valuable asset for the federal government or for private uh, landowners. And this gets back to the idea that not pricing carbon dioxide is an American first policy because the U.S. is the oil, gas, is the fossil fuel uh, uh, reserve uh, center of the world. Uh, let's go with uh, this gentleman in the center with the glasses, sir. Um, nobody, nobody here talked about um, the security of the power grid and proposals by Taylor Wilson and others to have many smaller power plants that use nuclear fission underground, or maybe they could use natural gas, they could use other renewable sources, but the, would create lots and lots of jobs, but they wouldn't create jobs for coal miners, for Donald Trump's you know, voter base. But they would create a lot of manufacturing jobs and would make the power grid a lot safer. That isn't the subject that's been discussed here, but I think it's a very serious topic. Can you, any of you comment on power grid security and decentralization, having smaller plants, smaller generation stations? That's Taylor Wilson's idea. Um, there really isn't uh, much of a free market uh, in uh, electrical transmission. Uh, it's been uh, regulated as a public utility by um, uh, a vertically integrated uh, franchise monopolist uh, for uh, just about a century now. Uh, and uh, what would be very interesting is for, uh, for FERC, uh, as well as state governments, to uh, enter into exit contracts with uh, the existing utilities, the, the uh, privately owned utilities, uh, where uh, uh, under a legal contract for a certain number of years, and they would have to hammer it out, uh, consumer groups, companies, uh, uh, public interest uh, representatives, uh, uh, what they have to do during this interim period after which they are de regulate it. The idea that uh, uh, electric, electric utilities or natural monopolies to me is a very strange idea when you realize how simple it is to put additional wires on the poles. And certainly with uh, uh, advancing technology we can get away from this natural monopoly uh, argument. So in a free market what is electric transmission going to look, look like? Uh, if there's a uh, risk of uh, system failures, if there's profit opportunities, I think we will thicken uh, the grid, but we need market signals. I just want to echo that. So um, one of the problems that we've had in addressing questions related to the security of the grid um, is the lack of a, of a market for it. Markets right now in electricity are sort of manufactured by FERC or at the state level. And there's not really a way to price the kind of risk that you're talking about. Uh, this also applies to cybersecurity risk. And so we're seeing a lot of cool thoughts come out about ways that you can abate risk without necessarily imposing some rules and regulations on the utilities that provide power, uh, be they regulated or restructured. Um, so it's a, it's a really entertaining issue because we're seeing creative thinking about how do you abate risk across the board. Right now it seems like we do that by building redundancies into the transmission and distribution system. Uh, that's one approach, but we do that because we don't really know how to price the value of another approach. Uh, why don't we go through in the front here? 
Hey, thanks guys. Uh, it's Jackie Toth, the reporter with CQ Roll Call. Um, the House Science Committee has already held a hearing this session on uh, the Energy Department's loan guarantee program. Democrats are pointing out uh, the loan program has uh, it, it sponsored some of the first um, PV solar projects in the nation. Um, Republicans also are saying that um, it, the market should be setting um, these investment priorities. Uh, where do you guys think uh, the loan program uh, should go from here? I, I'm happy to take that one. Uh, so I think that if you want companies to invest in lower carbon technologies, the best way to do that is to make a prof, you know, make it profitable to do so. So I think pricing carbon at a reasonable level would automatically shift out the supply of technological innovation. And, and you know, our capital markets work. We have very robust, efficient capital markets in the United States. So certainly for those more um, uh, market, almost ready technologies, I, I, I prefer to see private capital markets. We just got to set the signals appropriately so that capital is allocated that way. Um, I think where uh, you need to think about a role for government is in that basic research that Katrina was talking about. And I firmly believe there's a federal role in basic research. I think I tend to get a little bit more skeptical when we're talking about loan guarantees for deployment. And there I'd rather personally see markets Move, uh, move capital, but with the right price signals. Um, on the question of renewable energy policy, remember for most of mankind's history, which was a history of poverty, the market share of renewable was 100%. Uh, primitive biomass, uh, falling water, uh, 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 very niche uh, roles for uh, wind and solar. So the idea that renewables are inherently good or they're the future, I think, is an inversion of history. Uh, uh, the, uh, from a classical liberal point of view, the government policy toward renewable should be completely neutral, no tax advantages or anything. In a free market, what would the market share of renewables be? Well, certainly there's uh, hydroelectricity that's... Uh, 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 that's been built, has low incremental costs. But there is a, a free market role for solar off the grid. So solar is really your starter energy, and it is the bridge fuel to uh, uh, fossil fuel energy. And I think if we get toward a free market energy policy, uh, and uh, we have some opportunities here with Trump, I could see in 10 or 20 years a market share of uh, fossil fuels going up from uh, 80% to 90% uh, plus. The supply is certainly there. You know, one thing we've skirted around and haven't really hit directly is uh, you mentioned people want cheap and clean fuel. Well, nuclear seems to be the answer to that. It bridges both camps of people who want cheap and abundant energy to pay for electrical grids, but it also has no carbon emissions and seems to be a natural solution to a to bridge a lot of these problems that both parties have with uh, energy policy. Is, is the time for nuclear now, or? So I'm going to say this with a bit of a heavy heart. Both of my parents are nuclear engineers. I was literally fed by nuclear power growing up. Um, but the time for nuclear is not now. Uh, natural gas is really cheap. Um, aggressive investment across the globe in renewable power makes that cheap. Uh, we're figuring out how to get more of it on the grid. 
probably at the expense of nuclear right now. Uh, if we had centralized planning, uh, and our plan was to deliver people carbon-free, abundant energy, um, then you could pick nuclear. But if you also add cheap, uh, now's just not the time. I might add an unintended consequence of the whole environmental movement uh, to price carbon dioxide uh, uh, is that by subsidizing wind power, uh, it has ruined the economics of nuclear plants in particular. We do have instances of premature retirements of nuclear plants because the economics are so bad because wind developers will sell uh, their kilowatt hours at a very low price, even negative prices uh, at time. And let me also uh, predict, here's a prediction for you in, in I'll say 10 years, but I think one of the major environmental problems we're gonna have in the next uh, 10, 15 years, and EPA is going to be wrestling with it, is how to uh, uh, deconstruct uh, uh, wind turbines around the country. Uh, uh, I think it's, it's already a problem in certain areas, and it's going to get uh, a lot bigger. Dr. Bradley, if I can just push back, uh, our street released a study a couple of months ago, and we found that the dominant signal in eliminating, uh, I guess, the competitive edge for the nuclear facilities that have retired or announced their retirement so far is actually the natural gas price signal. Um, so there are instances uh, where there's a lot of congestion on the grid, and the, I guess, influence of wind and negative pricing is outsized, but it hasn't been the dominant force so far. That's not saying it won't be uh, if we continue to invest. Um, but I'll also add that uh, if we did have a federal price on emissions, then uh, nuclear would be restored to its preference, even above the wind signals um, that are coming out. So, uh, Yes, you gentlemen, the fifth row. Yes, uh, my name is Prop Singh I'm from Pura Energy. So I'm curious, uh, you talked about researching for carbon um, removal. So why is Department of Energy focusing on it? Like their mission is to just to find out how much energy we're producing, not the residue or the hazards of it. That's more like EPA research. So why isn't EPA financing these carbon, you know, polluting, uh, you know, sources and trying to remove them out, trying to fund those technologies? Why is DOE getting into all this and making government more bigger? Because we already have three agencies, FERC, EPA, DOE dealing with energy policies, and it's just, you know, too much. Like, you know, we still haven't been able to do anything about it. Well, I would ask Congress that question. I mean, they're the ones that gave DOE the authority and the budget to do that program. So, I mean, there might be some advantage to streamlining some of these programs, combining them, aligning their... Um, their missions with, with the priorities of the new administration. And it, it does strike me there probably are some potential efficiency gains in doing something like that. I think the key uh, to me is to keep your eye on the ball is what is an appropriate role for government? And if we're intervening in the market, like why is that? And have a very specific problem we're trying to solve and we're choosing the policy instrument that does that task best. Will Mr. Perry be the influencer or the influencee in that one? I think a lot remains to be seen. Uh, do you have a question up here? Yeah. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. Um, it seems to be much of the conversation with comments related to renewables. 
are thinking about the numbers of what the pricing might have been 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, the Saudi Arabia, absolutely unsubsidized. They have projected they're going to be below 1.99 cents per kilowatt on a 20-year LCOE. You've got Mexico bidded in uh, unlimited, basically, at under 3 cents per kilowatt hour. Worldwide, globally, in decent wind areas, uh, onshore wind is 3 to 5 cents or even less. The United States, the Southwest, is the Saudi Arabia of, sol of sun. Our Midwest is the Saudi Arabia of wind. If we look at what's going on with technologies, or would we be handicapping ourselves for the decades to come by doing a fossil fuels-focused energy agenda? Well, we've been hearing that uh, for many a number of decades now that wind and solar are almost competitive. And the problem of wind and solar, and it's, you know, their electricity. And electricity uh, uh, requires uh, instantaneous generation and consumption. You can't store it. Wind and solar are intermittent resources. So even if a car is cheaper uh, and it has a trick motor, I'm not going to buy that car. I want to buy the, the reliable car. Uh, the the uh, uh, if wind and solar on grid solar are really competitive, it's time to end the tax subsidies. It's time to end the state renewable quotas, and I think we all know what's going to happen. The industry is going to go bust, uh, and it's going to go bust in a very big way. This has been a mistake uh, from the 1970s. Uh, where we were hearing that uh, wind and solar were about to be competitive. They're simply not, and an intermittent product is a, is a very inferior product. And uh, The other thing is the environmental problems of wind power. Talk to the people that live close to a wind turbine, okay? There's a grassroots rebellion against these things. Uh, and uh, at uh, Master Resource, for example, we uh, post a lot of stories about people who uh, are now energy experts because they've uh, been so agitated at the wind turbines that are uh, 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 destroying their quality of life. Uh, uh, when, I guess I'll end with the joke, when is an environmentalist not an environmentalist? And the answer is when it comes to wind power. I so, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, I think, Rob, you need to look at the newer data on the levelized costs of power from renewable energy, and particularly in areas where there's already existing underutilized capacity for natural gas backup. You know, you can integrate um, wind and solar at a I mean, I myself have been shocked at how much these costs have come down, even, I want to say, in the last two years. And I'm not talking about the subsidized prices. I'm talking about the market prices in these technologies. It is remarkable. So I think we need to look at the data as it is now. What are the projections of these technologies? Where do we have underutilized backup capacity where we don't have the intermittency issues? And be open to these new technologies. And I, and I take your point about the environmental downsides of all energy technologies. Talk to people who live near a coal-fired power plant and how they like their air quality. Everybody, every kind of energy has downside except for maybe energy efficiency, which is the, you know, energy we don't produce. But, you know, everybody's got 
um, some kind of trade-off they need to make. The question is, like, let's balance those in a reasonable way. But I think it's also sort of going beyond the data. So what we're here talking about is uh, federal policy towards uh, energy. And let me extend that then to the state level. I think that we can be in a circumstance where we really don't care what the data reveals, but we're constructing policies that allow all energy types to actually compete. And so I sort of do really dig this vision of stripping out mandates and subsidies and loan guarantees and you name it for the energy sources that were preferenced under the prior administration and see what happens. Um, I think it was like 60% of the renewable energy installed in the United States in 2015 came from individual contracts from companies that wanted to buy their own renewable power. Yes, that number can be tainted by the presence of subsidies, but that to me shows that there's interest and a market for relying on energy that doesn't have a fuel cost, which is their primary interest there. So uh, what happens if we really don't care what the data shows, but we construct the markets that allow all energy sources to compete? Um, and then we'll see if there's an answer to the intermittency and the variability that comes from renewable <coughs> sources. And if there's not, then they can't compete. Uh, yes, you in the front there. Go back and forth. Tom Woods, I'm an independent consultant. Uh, sort of reminded of a play that was written in the 1950s. It was called Three Actors in Search of a Playwright. And I'm listening not to a point which you are three policy discussers. But it seems there's a lot of policy discussion. Can you give me in about two or three sentences what you think the objective of an energy policy of the energy of energy should be, regardless of the policies you're following? Just to see if there's even a consistency among the three of you. Well, I would say uh, uh, in, in a regime of private property rights, voluntary exchange between consenting adults with a, a government-neutral policy. I would just say there's multiple objectives in any energy policy because you're striking trade-offs across a number of goals. You want reliability, you want safety, you want environmental protection, you want affordability. All of these things don't lend themselves to one little soundbite of, you know, our energy policy should have this one singular goal. I mean, if I was going to say it, I'd put it in economic terms, maximize net social benefits, which include also non-monetized outcomes. So maybe that's a little too nerdy, but kind of summarizes how I feel about a lot of government policy, and not just energy. Uh, and with that, unfortunately, we will not end on a soundbite. But uh, let's thank our speakers. Uh, and I will have.